electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Carl, thanks. Well, you got your scorecard finally on Wall Street, but winners stay late. Welcome to Closing Bell Overtime. I am John Fort. Morgan Brennan is off today. Coming up on today's show, the majority of earnings season, it's behind us. But we've got some major reports hitting this week, including NVIDIA on Wednesday. Today, we will get numbers from one-time pandemic darling Zoom. We'll have full analysis as soon as those numbers hit. Plus, we'll be joined by Council on Foreign Relations President Emeritus Richard Haas to talk China as that country cuts a key interest rate a little bit to try to spur its economy, well, quite a bit. Uh, let's, uh, let's see, our market panel is ready. Joining us now, Ed Klissold from Ned Davis Research and Katie Kaminsky from Alpha Simplex. But before we get to you guys, we got some breaking news on Teva Pharmaceutical. Bertha Coombs has the story. Bertha? John, the Justice Department announcing a deferred prosecution agreement with Teva Pharmaceuticals and Glenmark Pharmaceuticals this afternoon to resolve charges of price fixing involving the generic cholesterol drug Pravastatin. Under the criminal antitrust agreement, Teva will pay $225 million in a criminal penalty, the largest ever for a domestic antitrust cartel, and donate $50 million to a humanitarian group. Glenmark's U.S. division will pay a $30 million criminal penalty. But in an unprecedented move, both companies will be required to divest those product lines, sell the businesses within three months under the supervision of the DOJ, and they will be prohibited from entering into the Pravastatin market in the U.S. for five years. As part of the agreement, Teva also admitted to participating in price fixing on two other drugs, clotramazole for skin infections and tobramycin used to treat cystic fibrosis. The deals resolve an indictment brought three years ago involving seven companies in all. And with today's fines, John, the group has collectively agreed to pay $680 million in criminal penalties. Back to you. Uh, Bertha, what, what background can you give us on this? I'm looking at the chart on Teva. After hours, it kind of went up and down. And now it, it seems to be headed down a bit. It, it spiked a bit uh, since the beginning of August when it was more uh, in the 825 uh, per share range. Now it's up uh, around 950. It, was this expected? Is this good news? Uh, or, or is this In perhaps some ways, more it than does, expected? It does resolve the case. Uh, this is something that has been pending and out there. They were charged in August of 2020. And it, if they had gone to trial and if they'd lost, they would have been prohibited into doing any business with government plans. That's Medicare or Medicaid. So that would have been even worse. But, John, it just speaks to the fact that you are seeing pressure on these drug makers, whether they are the branded drug makers, who next week will learn which 10 drugs will be the first to be negotiated under the IRA by Medicare, or in this case, the the generic pharmaceutical makers, people are fighting back over what they perceive as overly high prices on drugs, either on the legislative, the regulatory, or in this case, the antitrust front. All right. Bertha Coombs, thank you. You can see that stock down just over a percent and a half. Let's get back now to our market panel. Ed Clissold from Ned Davis Research, Katie Kaminsky from Alpha Simplex. Guys, welcome. Katie, uh, right before noon in today's trade, it seemed like 
things change. The 10-year yield is up significantly today, but backed off of its highs uh, above uh, you know, the yield of, of 4.354. So what does it mean that the S&P and NASDAQ were still able to make notable gains with, uh, with the 10-year above 4.34? I think that's what's so exciting today. I mean, really, it was a huge day for the Treasury market, and we're seeing a positive return in the, in the stock market, something we didn't see last week. What is interesting for us is we think rates are going to be higher for longer, and maybe the stock market's okay with it. I mean, maybe that's what's going on. Okay, so Ed, does that is that good news for the rest of the week, or does it put more pressure both on Nvidia, which was up significantly today, to turn in earnings and a guide uh, Wednesday on overtime that that makes people continue to feel good, and then does it put more weight on Jackson Hole? Well, I, I think in in terms of these really large tech stocks, if you say take the eight largest tech stocks, they they as a group, account for 28% of the S&P and about 18% of earnings. And that 10% gap is about the largest on record. So can they continue to rally? Yeah, but they really need their earnings to come through to justify the rallies that they've already come. So, so I think the pressure has been ratcheted up on those companies to deliver. In terms of rates, Ed, uh, if you can talk about NVIDIA, uh, we were just showing the chart. It was up about 8.5% today. AI has been fueling a lot of the excitement, not just behind NVIDIA, but also behind Microsoft, some others. I mean, do these bigger tech names need for the AI narrative to continue to have momentum? And is that tied to NVIDIA or no? Well, our, our compliance doesn't allow us to talk about individual companies, but in terms of a AI in general, that, that has been the, the big sentiment driver. And there does need to be some something behind the sentiment and the fundamentals need to start coming through uh, to justify what has already happened. Now, a lot of times whenever any there's a big move, people compare it to the dot-com bubble. This is a long way for that in terms of the kind of gains that, that we've seen so far. And that, that these companies, a lot of them, do have good businesses behind them in addition to AI. They have something to fall back on. So uh, we, we don't want to get too, uh, you know, too draconian in, in our conversation about it. But, but if they're yeah. going to continue to outperform be market leaders, they're going to need to start to, to put some, some better earnings growth behind what they've done. I want to mention here we've been awaiting Zoom earnings. They are out. That stock looks to me like it's popping about uh, more than 7%. We're going through those numbers. We'll bring them to you as soon as we have clarity on them. Katie, uh, where, if at all, does China fit into this puzzle for you? Um, a little bit of a hike here on the rate that they need some growth. Uh, there are concerns about whether global markets get dragged down if, if China worsens. How does that factor into your outlook and how you're investing right now? Well, I think the challenge has been you've seen such a divergence. I mean, the U.S. is looking very strong, while China has definitely been disappointing recently. We've seen that particularly in the oil markets this month. Um, you're seeing some mixed results there, and it's also affecting some of the currency markets. So we're definitely seeing the, some big moves in terms of the Chinese yuan, um, and that's providing some interesting opportunities for trading around that divergence between what's going on here and what's going on there. But what about China as a market itself and its impact? For example, back half of this year, the likes of Apple. I mean, greater China is an important market for them. We've seen the luxury market in China hold up better than uh, the economy in general. 
Should we expect to hear more about China weakness affecting some of the expectations in these companies' numbers, or is there enough insulation uh, from renewed growth elsewhere, higher than expected growth in the U.S., for example, to, to sort of shield from that? Well, I think this is where this month has been important. This month, we've seen that negative or disappointment in China turn from what was a relative positioning for the U.S. to, oh, no, this could actually leak into somewhere else. And particularly oil prices, copper prices and other uh, raw commodities were showing some of those moves. So I think it's definitely a new narrative to start thinking about. Is there some contagion that might also leak over into U.S. companies as well? All right. Katie, Ed, thank you. Now, as I mentioned, we got those Zoom numbers ready. Pippa Stevens has them. Pippa. Hey, John, the stock is hop jumping here after the company beat on the top and the bottom line for Q2. EPS coming in at 134 per share on an adjusted basis. That was 29 cents ahead of estimates. Revenue at 1.14 billion, slightly ahead of the 1.12 billion forecast. Now, in terms of guidance, the company sees EPS for Q3 and the full year ahead of expectations with revenue for Q3 in line with analyst estimates. Now, the company did say that its enterprise revenue was up 10.2% year over year and that its operating cash flow grew 30.6% year over year. That stock up 6% now. John? All right. Pippa Stevens, thank you. Let's get some instant analysis with CFRA analyst Keith Snyder. Keith, it appears to be um, really the, the cost uh, consciousness that's benefiting this stock as much as anything. Big beat on EPS, revenues a little better than in line, maybe enterprise doing well, which is what you want to see, their core business. Uh, why is it up? Yeah, I mean, that EPS number is fantastic. Um, the revenue, obviously, a little bit of a beat. But, um, you know, cost cutting has been a huge initiative for them for the past few quarters, especially as growth has really slowed following, you know, that huge jump we saw during the pandemic. Um, and then with enterprise growing like it did, um, you know, that's a really important future area for them. They're going up against, you know, a lot of huge companies. You have Cisco um, with their WebEx platform. You have Microsoft with Teams. Um, you know, these are these platforms are ingrained in a lot of enterprises. And to be winning customers is huge for Zoom um, because a lot of us in the analyst community have, you know, been looking to what's next. Um, you know, what does Zoom 2.0 look like and how are they going to reignite um, that growth that we saw, you know, during the, the, the years of the pandemic? And mm. so to see them grow um, and beat top and bottom like this is certainly, um, you know, a positive step forward for the company as a whole. So what do they got to do here? Do they need to do M&A? I think uh, RingCentral just bought Hopin, or at least most of its assets, a couple weeks ago. That's moving them more into, um, you know, events and, and webinars and, and streaming meetings. Uh, Zoom has tried to do some acquisitions in the past. Five, nine, most notably, they weren't able to do that. Do they need to do something smaller? Does this perhaps, uh, these results give them the sort of credibility with shareholders that they need in order to get something like that done? Yeah, I mean, the 5.9 deal especially, that was really disappointing for the company um, because a lot of, you know, the talk um, that they've been giving has been getting into the call center market. And while they have done this, um, you know, gaining a foothold from nothing in that market is very difficult. And 5.9 would have given them a huge customer base right off the bat. Um, what really surprised me is they didn't come back to the table with 5.9. Um, you know, the deal fell through because it was an all-stock deal. The stock was trading far lower than when they first struck the deal. Um, and so we were just surprised, 
Um, the company didn't go back and use the five and a half billion of cash on the balance sheet. They have no debt. They, they could have come back and restructured the deal. And so with that falling through, we do think M&A is um, a strong possibility for the company. They really need to um, acquire new technologies. We're, we're seeing you know, a lot of talk about AI. They could push deeper into that space with an acquisition. Okay. Um, they could push deeper into you know, functionality for their platform to compete with the likes of Microsoft Team who you know, have the office tie-in. So um, on the call, ahead. I just want to be sure to, to get this from you, but before we got to let you go, on the call, what's most key is it that trajectory of enterprise growth? Is it making sure that that consumer business isn't too much of a drag? Is it, is it international expansion? I mean, so enterprise is going to be critical. And I'm very curious to see what their commentary around enterprise growth is and where that growth came from. Um, the other key factor that I'm especially going to be looking for is that they have a clear vision for where the company is headed rather than just kind of throwing cash at different technology and hoping something sticks, I would like to see a very clear roadmap for the company of what it's going to be doing over the next two, three, four years um, to expand their um, their markets, to expand their customer base, and to expand their product offerings. Huh. Okay, I'm told we got time for one more. So let me ask, what's the biggest threat to them? Is it the larger players like Microsoft? Is it smaller ones uh, that are still sizable like Atlassian or even like Asana that are doing collaboration in a different way? Is that an area they need to get into? Yeah, I mean, the collaboration tie-in is extremely important. Um, we've seen it with Microsoft. We see it with Cisco. They have um, an entire ecosystem of tools that you know can help a team get a project uh, through this through the finish line um, that Zoom really doesn't have. They just kind of have a, a conferencing platform. And don't get me wrong, it's a great platform, but it lacks that um, functionality that really makes it a, a one-stop shop for an entire enterprise. And so, you know, it's a very, very crowded space. It's extremely competitive. And the companies they're going up against, Microsoft, Cisco, are, are huge with massive cash balances and the ability to go buy, you know, if they wanted to, they could have just walked in and bought five, nine in cash. Um, and, you know, they would have suddenly been in the call center space. So you know, they're just facing a lot of competition from much better capitalized companies. Yeah. Well, stock is popping up better than 7% at the moment after hours. We await that call. Keith, thank you. After thank the you. break, we're going to talk about the one earnings report everybody's going to be watching this week, and that is, of course, NVIDIA. It has been the poster child of AI-driven tech gains in the market, climbing more than 200%. That's 3x year-to-date. We will bring uh, you the latest big expectations with an analyst who says this is the most important print to watch all year. Overtime's back in two. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 
Welcome back to Overtime. NVIDIA surging today as it gets set to report earnings on Wednesday. Investors will be closely watching the results of this poster child of the AI winners. Analysts were out with bullish notes on the stock today and over the weekend, including HSBC, Baird, KeyBank, and Bank of America. Our next guest says NVIDIA's print could be the most important earnings event of the year so far. Let's bring in Ben Reitzes of Melius Research. Ben, okay, three months ago, this thing was at 305. It's at around 470 today after popping 8.5% on no news today. How good does this print have to be? Well, there was a little news today, actually, John. Uh, at TSMC, there was some worries they were going to cut their forecast, and TSMC said that was a false, at least a falsehood, and that came out in Taiwan. I think that provided a little relief as well. But a lot of people have been out bullish, including ourselves, and uh, – we're, we're still very upbeat. We think long term there's $20 in earnings power here. Not sure which quarter they'll demonstrate that. And that warrants a $625 target. OK, so kind of like a lack of bad news is good news <laughs> in this case yeah. when it comes to NVIDIA. But I mean, this move has been dramatic. And the move a quarter ago was based on really a huge, huge guide. What was it like seven billion above what was expected. Does the guide have to be another upside surprise or are we at a point of sort of equilibrium and expectations right now in NVIDIA? Oh, I don't know about equilibrium. I mean, this is a go-go stock right now. I think that this quarterly call needs to be different than the last one. The last one was like a fall off your chair guide. Uh, literally, I almost did. Um, it was $4 billion above what anybody, you know, above their, their above expectations. And it really showed that AI was taking off. I think this time they need to be a little more careful. They need to make sure we don't get out over our skis and they need to answer a few questions. First, they need to talk about supply. Packaging supply uh, has constrained TSMC. So they need to kind of walk us through in a little more detail on how they're going to ramp at TSMC so that we know the demand will eventually shift. The demand is out of sight. Second, they need to talk about China. Because there's some concerns that China got pulled forward with panic buying before Biden does any more curves. So we need to see what how we're going to navigate China. And I think that that needs to get into a little more detail so people don't get out over their skis. Ben? And yeah, go ahead. I, I worry that the, the demand, some of it, for these accelerators isn't real in the sense that uh, people are using these chips as as currency almost, stockpiling them because they know they're in demand and, and sort of using them a, a, as a form of of value in and of themselves, not as chips, but I know everybody wants these. Do they have to explain that? Is there concern out there that the, the demand is partially based on hype as well as based on the, the real demand out there for AI? Yeah, I think that's a really good point, John. I mean, we had some checks during the quarter where NVIDIA was actually asking a lot of questions of their customers being, hey, is it real? I actually think the company is doing a really good job of trying to figure out what their customers are using everything for so they actually can avoid that problem. Obviously, though, you can't control everything. So I do think they're going to need to talk about that, John. But I do think there is an effort at the company to make sure that they know what people are using the chips for so that there can be follow-through on demand. And not only that, so they could probably upsell more stuff mm -hmm. as we go throughout mm -hmm. the year. And to put the finest point on it, if the demand right now is significantly not real, which we don't know, I'm just raising the question, it causes an inventory issue later, right? I mean, there's supply out there in the market that has to get digested and eventually 
right, um, the, the sell-through then is not as strong. You know, John, I'm going to pivot you, though, a little bit. Like, okay. a little bit of the demand, a lot of the demand right now is from these startups, right, that are getting funding, and then they're rushing to buy the GPUs. That is true, John. But what we need to have them articulate is the handoff to enterprise demand. And a lot of that demand is going to go to the cloud giants uh, as well. And what we need to do is be shepherded a little bit from the hype cycle right now to the real enterprise demand cycle, where we're going to have AI apps, both for enterprise and consumer, that we're really going to use. So I do think there's upside in the quarter. Could be, I mean, the demand is almost infinite. So let's just say it could be up to a billion plus. And there could be the, the talk about the next quarter is significant upside as well. But that has to go hand in hand with a mature conversation about the three points we talked about, China, capacity, and what you're talking about, the handoff to the real demand in the marketplace. Mature. And we, we do think real demand right now. Yeah. Okay. Mature, but at the same time, you want to keep people somewhat excited because there's a lot of good stuff going on in AI. Ben Reitz is thank you. Hey, thanks, John. Take care. Take care. Up next, Richard Haas from the Council on Foreign Relations says China's economic troubles are largely self-inflicted and leave Beijing leadership with three options, one of which could be very bad for global stability. He will join us to explain. Plus, summer's nearly over, but green shoots are just starting to emerge in the deal space after a barren year so far. We will tell you about the latest move in the worlds of M&A and IPOs when Overtime comes right back. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at... 3 a.m. The office was shocked. (laughs) That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. China's central bank cutting its one-year loan prime rate a little bit, the second cut in three months. This comes after one of its leading property developers, Evergrande, filed for bankruptcy protection in the U.S. on Friday. Joining us now, Culture, uh, Council on Foreign Relations President Emeritus Richard Haas. Richard, welcome. So um, deflation's a, a big problem in China right now because it's making people feel poorer and want to spend less right when the government needs confidence. When will we know exactly how serious a problem this is for them? Well, we already know it's a serious problem. That's not in doubt. Uh, the patient, shall we say, is ill, and these small cuts in rates is like giving aspirin to someone who's in the emergency room, uh, not close to being enough. So the real question is what the Chinese leadership does when it becomes clear these partial measures aren't enough, and either they've got to double down and essentially uh, increase repression and try to get through this, or they're going to have to do something like they did during COVID, which is change policy dramatically and go back to a much more open uh, economic model. I think that's unlikely. So the most likely course for the time being is, is pretty much more of the same. Okay, more of the same for now. But then you also say a third thing that they could do is ramp up the tensions with Taiwan, and I guess part of the theory here is if you've got a young, largely male, idle uh, workforce, that's not a good thing. Uh, best to distract them with something? That's exactly right. They've got over 20%, probably higher, youth unemployment. 
their response to that is to stop publishing the data. That's unlikely to solve the uh, the problem. No, the the danger is that they turn to foreign uh, mischief or to to aggression. I mean, think about it. The bargain between the Chinese Communist Party and the people for decades was. We will deliver to you high levels of economic growth, better lifestyle, and in return, you give us 100% of your political loyalty. You, you don't worry about your rights. Well, if they can't deliver significant levels of economic growth, and I think that era is, is, is over, what then? And that's the challenge they face. And sure, what worries people like me is they will look to distract through satisfying nationalism. Hmm. That's where Taiwan comes in. And what we need to do, we, the United States, Japan, Australia, Europe, is need to indicate to China that that would be folly. That is not their answer. They've, the only way they can really deal with their economy is through serious economic reform. So is it, Richard, by making that option look bad, by saber-rattling and saying, if you uh, cause trouble for Taiwan, here's how it will respond? Or is it by making something else look better by tying them somehow more closely to the West, even though this idea that uh, economic cooperation was going to make China friendlier hasn't worked out so far. Yeah, I don't think tying China more closely to the West is a, is a serious uh, option right now. What we're trying to do is create more barriers in the way of uh, technology flow there. There's too much of what China's doing at home or abroad for us to, to open things up. So no, I think what we need to do is discourage aggression on their part. That's what deterrence is all about. And then what we need to do is essentially force China to essentially make their, their own economic choices. And again, there, there's two. One is more of the same. I don't think that's very attractive. But it is hard to imagine this Chinese leadership agreeing to significant economic loosening because they obviously worry that would lead to pressures for political loosening. And that's the last thing they want. The word dilemma is overused. China's leadership, Xi Jinping, have a dilemma here. Yeah, doesn't seem like he's retained power for this long to be forced into making big changes now. Richard Haas, President Emeritus, the Council on Foreign Relations. Thank you. Thank Time you. now for a CNBC News update with Contessa Brewer. Contessa? John, hello. Former President Donald Trump has agreed to a $200,000 bond after his lawyers were spotted at the Fulton County District Attorney's Office in Georgia. When asked by NBC News if they'd reach agreement on the bond, a Trump lawyer just said, just about. First, McDonald's and Starbucks left at the start of the war with Ukraine, and now Domino's is getting out of Russia, too. The company that owns the fast food franchise rights in Russia and several nearby countries announced today it will file for bankruptcy and close all 142 stores in that country. And for everyone out there with an extra $30 million to spend on a set of wheels, this... Is the Royce drop tail, the Rolls Royce. The Roadster was inspired by high speed sailing yachts in the 1930s. It's expected to cost more than $30 million because, one, the company will only make four of these two seaters, but also because buyers can fully customize the vehicle to their liking. So, you know, it's different, John, than if you just buy a regular Rolls Royce and then have it tricked out. Yeah, as I do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Contessa Brewer, thank you. Uh, we've got a news alert now on Schwab. Pippa Stevens has it. Pippa. Hey, John. Well, Schwab saying it's going to cut jobs and also reduce its real estate footprint. The company said this will cost it between $400 and $500 million, and those costs will be incurred throughout the second half of this year and into next year. 
But ultimately, Schwab said that this streamlining of operations will save it $500 million uh, per year on a run rate cost savings basis. Shares are up about up about a quarter of one percent here. John. All right. Pippa, thank you. Ten year Treasury yields resuming their march higher today, as we mentioned, touching levels not seen since before the financial crisis. Up next, we'll talk to a technical analyst who says rates could make a push even higher. He'll tell us the level to watch and take a look at two of today's tech winners, Broadcom and VMware, both getting a boost on news that the UK has cleared Broadcom's massive takeover of VMware in a deal worth more than $60 billion. Do not miss our exclusive interview tomorrow with VMware's CEO right here on Overtime. Be right back. Breaking news on Arm Holdings. Deirdre Bosa has the details. Dee? Hey, John. Arm just revealing its F1 as it plans for a public offering in early September. The company intends to trade on the NASDAQ under ticker name ARM. Arm, no surprise there. The lead bankers are, and this is in alphabetical order, Barclays, Goldman, JP Morgan, and Mizuho. Now, Arm is a chip designer known as the Switzerland of chips. It both designs its own chips that power the majority of smartphones around the world, but it also works with mega cap customers in terms of building their own in-house silicon. Revenue during its last fiscal year was $2.7 billion. That is a decline year over year. Net income in fiscal 23 was $524 million. That's also lower than it was in 2022. Remember, Arm was bought by SoftBank and taken private back in 2016 for $31 billion. It was last valued at $64 billion in a private transaction. That was back in 2019, according to sources. Now, it has been reported that they're looking at a valuation of somewhere between 60 and 70 billion on public markets when it does file to go public. We'll continue to go through this more than 200-page document. We'll look at risk factors, competition, key stakeholders, and bring it to you as we get it. But John, this is a big deal. This is a big one. This would be the biggest IPO of the year, and it could open the window for other tech IPOs to follow. I think it used to be ARMH, if I recall, back when it was public I think the first you're right. time. Changed hands a lot of times. I mean, what do you see as the, the big question for them going forward in their growth trajectory? I mean, I imagine it's got to be AI and how much of their IP they can get into that mix since the, the traditional CPU is less important than the yeah. accelerators now. I think that's exactly it. We know what has happened in the tech space and the chip space in particular this year. It's really had this AI underpinning this boom. And ARM is going to make the argument, they're trying to make it in this document, that they are AI-centric, not just AI-adjacent. That's what Masasan has been saying over the last few months as he has focused on bringing this company public. So, you know, we're at this show-me moment, John, as you know very well, where investors, they want to see that the revenue related to AI is already there. The fact that revenue declined in its last fiscal year, year over year, Perhaps not a positive sign, but again, it was last valued at $64 billion. That would be at the higher end of that range. And that was, what, four years ago. So we'll have to see what the market thinks this is worth. But again, AI is going to be so important because the majority of its revenue is certainly tied to the global smartphone market, which is in decline. But AI is this powerful force that seems to have investors' imagination right now. So if it can capitalize and prove to investors that it is going to be a big beneficiary of this shift, not to the extent, certainly, of NVIDIA, but at least a player in this, then it could reach sort of could reach those valuations. Yeah, you want to see them able to make the, the argument that their IP is getting greater share 
as AI gets bigger. We'll see what they can do. Dee, thank you. And arms right. filing just now, uh, just one of the green shoots emerging in the deal space. Leslie Picker has that story. Leslie? Hey, John. Yeah, this is exciting. Signs of life and IPOs. You've got Arm and Instacart also expected uh, gearing up for its public debut. In M&A, you've got effectively a bidding war for U.S. Steel and now hedge fund uh, sculptor capital as well. And in activism, you've got Starboard engaged in Blumen Brands. So clearly it's welcome news for a market that's been effectively dormant for a year and a half now. North American mergers and acquisitions came in at $960 billion during the first six months of the year, according to PitchBook. That is about 16% below the pre-pandemic first half average. And IPOs didn't fare any better. Despite well-publicized debuts by, say, Kava and Kenview, U.S.-listed IPOs are raking in about a tenth each quarter than they did in 2021, according to KPMG. And while the engines appear to be turning back on, especially uh, just a few moments ago, it's not quite full speed ahead. Bankers and other sources I talk with say that a lot of companies are effectively in wait and see mode. They want to assess some of the larger IPOs in the pike. They want to see how ARM does. And then they want to get a little more comfortable doing deals, especially in this regulatory environment that's more applicable to M&A before they do anything major. But as the prospect of a recession seems Further and further away, consensus really kind of pricing in a, a soft landing or no landing at this point in time, uh, then you could start to see more activity, particularly after Labor Day. John? All right, Leslie. Yeah, I know some people out there waiting to see what happens with valuations on enterprise software haven't gotten high enough mm-hmm. for them yet. Leslie Picker, thank you. Let's turn now to Treasuries, the 10-year yield hitting its highest level today since 2007. Our next guest says, might not stop there. Joining us now is J.C. O'Hara. He's chief market technician at Roth MKM. J.C., this was puzzling to me today because it, it seemed like the market was moving based on the 10-year last week for quite a while. Big spike today, and then it just backed off a bit, not even a whole lot, and the S&P and especially the NASDAQ started running. What does that tell you? Well, I, I still think there's a high degree of correlation between yields moving higher and the stock market moving lower. We didn't necessarily see that play out today. And, and I think there you know, has something to do with you know, NVIDIA and um, some of the earnings taking place. But from a longer term picture, if you look at yields, specifically the 10 year, look at the 30 year, look at real yields, they are breaking out, right? A lot of our attention has been over the last 18 months and rightfully so on the front end of the curve. You know, what is the two year doing? What is the two year yield telling us about Fed policy? But the two year has been more or less anchored over the last few months. All the action from a technical perspective is on the long end. And when you start seeing rates break out to multi-year highs, that's telling us something that we need to pay attention because typically we just don't break out and stop. You typically break out and continue moving higher. Okay, so is this effectively, do you think, pressure on the equity market or no? Because does this put, uh, with the 10-year being where it is, 434, does it put more pressure on the overall market with NVIDIA earnings, uh, perhaps reacting to those, whether they're good or not good, more pressure on what we get from the Fed out of Jackson Hole or no? Well, listen, I think that absolute level of yields, you know, can apply some pressure, right? You know, the higher the yield, more pressure. But I think more, it's it's the rate of change, right? If Go back to last hmm. year. If you look at the 10-year, you know, we had almost a 200 basis point move between August and October. During that time when yields were screaming higher, the equity market pulled back 
right? So now we're in another situation where the equity market was getting comfortable with yields at around that three and a half, four percent, right? That's where the market was trading, or you know, this year. Now we're moving to a new level, and when you move to a new level with this degree uh, of you know fast rates of change, the market gets uncomfortable. The market steps back, and you have to reassess, especially when you start looking at valuations. So yes, I, I do think the movement of yields right now will apply some pressure to the equity markets for sure. So how should we think about the next level to watch? Uh, I think we're at what four three four right now. Is it a matter of touching a certain level? Is it a matter of staying above a certain level for a certain amount of time? So technically, we had the thirty-year breakout last week. We have the ten-year today breaking out above those those October highs. So holding above four point three three, technically, that's key to us. Now, this is where you know we, we have to be careful. Where can we go? Well, when we look at longer-term breakouts, we have longer-term price objectives. We have to go all the way back to 2007 to find levels that we could point to to say, hey, this is where the 10-year can go. And for us, that means we have to be open to a 10-year moving closer to 5%, and if not, move above 5%. Above 5%, okay. Uh, we, we'll watch for all of that. Talk about holding above 433. JC O'Hara, thank you. After the break, the alternative to Tina. One particular part of the market having a moment right now, offering investors an option for steady returns. We'll explain next as we take another look at Zoom as well. That company beating on both lines with a sizable beat for EPS. That call kicks off the top of the hour, up more than 4.5% at the moment. Overtime will be right back. Welcome back to Overtime. Yields are on the rise, and that's giving investors something they haven't had in a while, options. Savers are rushing into money market funds and savings accounts with yields topping 5%. And that is the subject of the latest piece from our next guest. Joining us now is Gunjan Banerjee, CNBC contributor and Wall Street Journal lead writer for Markets Live. Gunjan, welcome. So I'm in a way confused because I thought investors, retail investors, were getting bullish on equities again, but now they're rushing into money market funds. Is this, in a way, good for equities if, if uh, investors are into money market funds now? Thanks, John. You know, I do think the hottest investment out there for all types of investors, retail, institutional, it's not Bitcoin, it's not Tesla, it's not even NVIDIA. I think it's the money market fund. And these yields are just too attractive for a lot of investors to pass up. We saw money market yields touch 5.15% recently. That's the highest level since 1999. And it's a move that has huge, huge ramifications for our entire financial system. We're just now starting to see that play out. And I think, as you pointed out, the big question is, what does it mean for the stock market? So far this year, higher yields have not dented the stock market rally, but I think we're starting to see that change a little bit in August. There's that old metaphor about peeing in the swimming pool to keep warm. It, it doesn't work for long. Aren't money markets kind of like that, though? I mean, it's not like you're going to, when rates go down, your money market fund doesn't stay above 5%. Well, I think we're seeing yields keep rising, right? Just today, we saw 10-year, 30-year yields jump to some of the highest levels since 2007. And I think 
One thing that's caught a lot of investors off guard is how high rates are going and how long they're going to stay there. Um, you know, by this point, a lot of investors were already expecting rates to go down. But I think the continued strength of the U.S. economy um, is just something a lot of people did not expect. So it seems like right now we are in this higher yield environment. Um, and it's one that a lot of savers just haven't seen. You know, this is the first time in a generation that people can park their cash in a safe investment and, and generate five percent yields. At the same time today, we saw NVIDIA up like eight and a half percent. So what, if anything, does this signal about retail investor attitudes uh, about risk? What are you seeing in options activity and leverage? That's right. I mean, one really fascinating thing is that there are kind of these parallel tracks, right? You are seeing people turn to money market funds. Such funds recently recorded their biggest weekly haul since May. So people are turning to safety. They are kind of ditching that Tina trade. Yet at the same time, Tesla, Nvidia saw huge pops today. And I think part of that is this AI media. You know, part of that is driven by Nvidia's earnings are on Wednesday. And I think a lot of people don't want to be caught off guard. They don't want to be left behind. Um, and that makes this week, you know, a really important one for that AI trade, for that tech trade that has really powered the market higher. NVIDIA alone has accounted for more than a tenth of the S&P 500's gains this year. That's playing out here on Overtime. Thanks for setting it up for us, Gunjun. Appreciate it. Gunjun Banerjee. Up next, the big three automakers are making preparations for a possible strike from the United Auto Workers. But their usual playbook around labor unrest might be hard to pull off this time around. We will explain why when we come right back. Arm Holdings filing to go public moments ago. Our dear Jabosa continuing to look through that filing. Dee joins us now with some updates. What do you have? Yeah, John, like I said, this is a more than 200-page filing. We're making our way through it, though, and I'm currently looking at the risk factors. So I wanted to bring our audience some of those. Among the risk factors in this prospectus, one competition, it cites from free open source RISC-V architecture. RISC-V is a similar company as ARM. However, it operates in an open source architecture, whereas ARM is closed source. And some see the benefit of that and that this could potentially provide more competition. Another risk factor, um, a lot of its revenue depends on its commercial relationship with ARM China. And we should note, Arm China operates independently of Arm. So, so a lot of revenue comes from there, but it doesn't necessarily have control. Finally, um, another one that I want to bring you, but this is, again, just a few of many different risk factors cited. It says SoftBank Group's interests may conflict with their own interests and those holders of their ADSs, so their American depository shares. Um, remember that SoftBank will still be the owner of this company, and it says that their interests may not necessarily coincide with their own. John, we're going to continue to look through this, and I'll bring you more as I get it. All right, Dee. Thank you. And now a sad note here on Overtime. Some things seem so fundamental that they should have always existed, like the idea that we can type something into a computer, change the font, print it out. But it took two mid-career engineering researchers at Xerox to dream that into being. Friends John Warnock and Chuck Geschke, frustrated that innovation wasn't making it out of the lab, left and in 1982 started Adobe Systems in John's garage. Adobe stock today is worth $235 billion. Its Photoshop program has been a verb for decades. Its PDF is the digital document standard. And now its data and analytics software have made it a central player in e-commerce and marketing. 
I met John Warnock 23 years ago at Adobe headquarters when I was assigned to cover the company. When Warnock stepped down as Adobe CEO later that year, Steve Jobs volunteered to talk to me about how important John was. The rare time Jobs wanted to talk about something other than Apple. That's because without Warnock and Adobe, the Mac and desktop publishing couldn't have happened. John Warnock was a bold technologist, compassionate leader, and trailblazing entrepreneur. He died Saturday at age 82. The United Auto Workers expected to hold a strike authorization vote this week. The results could have major consequences for automakers, dealers, and consumers. Our Phil LeBeau joins us now with the details. Phil. John, if there is a UAW strike come September 15th, the ability of the big three to weather the storm will come down to inventory. And they've been building up their inventory over the last several months. In fact, the latest, according to Cox Automotive, shows Stellantis inventory all the way up to 115 days. There you see Ford and GM. By the way, inventory overall for the industry, it's lower than it was back in 2019, the last time there was a UAW strike. Auto sales in the U.S. right now up almost 13% compared to last year a reflection of the fact that demand is out there. So how long will that inventory last? Look, if it's six or seven weeks for the 145,000 workers of the UAW, keep in mind, if there is a strike, it's unlikely they're all going to go on strike. It'll be a small portion who go on strike, but the implications would be real for the automakers and ultimately for the 150, approximately 150,000 approximately mem members of the UAW. As you take a look at shares of GM and Ford and Stellantis, keep in mind, as you mentioned, John, there is a strike author but we expect that to pass. It always does. Hmm. 90, 95% of the members usually say, yeah, go ahead, call a strike if you think it's the right thing to do. So, Phil, I saw a recent piece that posited that the days of higher inventory in the auto market are over, that is more efficient for automakers and for to, to just do a sort of deliver after you order scenario. But doesn't that make them more vulnerable to labor in a situation like this? Well, they're no dummies. They know that this deadline was coming up and they know the rhetoric and they know that the UAW is going to want a much richer contract than in past years. So they've been building it up over the last last couple of months. So this is not a normal environment. This is what we see every four years as the UAW contract comes up. All right. Well, uh, such an important. It seems like we're talking about strikes all over the place, uh, potentially Amazon, UPS. True. Now this. I mean, it, it's a tight labor environment in so many ways. And that what the UAW says that works to their advantage. They believe that it's time for organized labor to get a bigger piece of the pie. Yeah, we'll see how that trickles through into inflation based on those kinds of wages. Phil LeBeau, thank you. And uh, as we've been talking about, big week, NVIDIA earnings coming up, not tomorrow, but the day after. And, of course, Jackson Hole at the end of the week. That's going to do it for overtime. Fast Money starts now. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 